Welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast, in association with Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast with me, Michael Costello. Now, we must make our way to the sunshine of Monaco to meet with Formula One legend David Coulthard. We explored how mental toughness supported key moments in his life and the setbacks he faced along the way. Having the reserve and strength to dig deep when the going gets tough is key to anyone's ability to contend with life's challenges. This is an area that can be developed, but it asks big questions that you will need to answer. Have you clearly made a commitment to yourself on the challenges ahead? And are you clear on the sacrifices you're willing to make? Where are you spending energy, stress and time on areas that you could let go of? And what specifically do you need to fight for going forward? What is it that leads to your optimum state? And lastly, when you fail, how will you bounce back? Will your inner voice shatter the valuable lessons learnt? Or will you identify the ways in which you can get back up again to keep your commitment? As always, please like and subscribe, share the episode. But just for now, pull over, pull into the pit lane, put the handbrake on, refuel and enjoy the podcast. David Coulthard, welcome to the Workplace Evolution podcast. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it. I think a good place to start our conversation is actually just the definition of mental toughness itself. So actually, it's, it's very much about the ability to have control over emotions, being highly driven, committed to challenge, but also, as you're saying, that, that notion of being able to bounce back from setbacks, as well as having a very strong self-belief. So with all of that in mind, David, which driver, past or present in Formula One, stands out for you as having mental toughness? If you look through a generation of drivers, then, you know, the sort of 60s and early 70s, they were really facing the real possibility of death in a race. Um, you know, Jackie Stewart retired after 99 Grand Prix when his teammate Francois Sever was sadly killed in Watkins Glen. But I think that, you know, people like Nicky Lauda, who had the fiery crash in the Nürburgring, was read the last rites and came back later that season to challenge uh, James Hunt for the World Championship. Uh, clearly, Ayrton Senna was somebody that stood out with incredible mental resolve and he was prepared to do whatever was necessary. Yeah. You know, you could go through Michael Schumacher, you know, clearly the most successful driver in the history of the sport, but some questionable moments that he had on track through to Lewis Hamilton today, who talks about the adversity he overcame as uh, being one of the, the only black drivers competing in karting and then moving up through and, you know, not, not only dealing with the fact that they didn't come from a financially stable background, but they, they also felt that there was some other issues that he had to deal with along the way. Mm. But the reality, I think, is that you don't need to be a sports person to have mental resolve. You know, there's many people dealing with, with and overcoming adversity every single day that none of us maybe even hear about or know about. You know, let's head to Twynham uh, near Kukubri in Dumfries and Galloway, where, where you grew up. Beautiful part of the world. I, I'm interested to know what beliefs were instilled in you from an early age that may, may have helped you compete in what is a highly competitive environment. I'm, I'm very lucky the way my parents are. They are still together. They go everywhere together, came together in a very strong unit. 
built a business. You know, my father inherited a transport business. My mother was the eldest of eight children. Her father was a train driver. Her mother was a nurse and grew up, you know, in a two or three bedroom council house. So, you know, she being the eldest had to muck in and help at a very young age. And uh, I guess my father could be seen as becoming from a slightly more comfortable background, but was dyslexic. He recognized he wasn't good academically, but, but he, had, he could put his energy and his passion into something else. And one of, you know, I would say fairly strict discipline from my mother's side, which was contrasting my father. He, I don't even really remember him raising his voice, quite frankly. But certainly my mother would raise her voice. If she raised her voice, you knew the next phase if you didn't do what you were told, you were going to you know, feel the back of her hand over your lug, which uh, for those who don't know what your lug is, <laughs> your ear. Um, you, you've described discipline there. Discipline, but, but yeah. From, from one side, and then you've described emotional control on, on the other from your dad? Yeah, I think, well, that's, there you go. You've, you've, you've highlighted something that I hadn't really pictured in my own mind. But I have, even more so in my 40s, reached out to my parents and thanked them, and most recently during this period, for, for giving me work ethic, for being the way they were. In your, your book, David, The Winning Formula, you, you've mentioned some of the sacrifices that you've made during your career. During those sacrifices, what was it that kept you going? Yeah, because obviously going away on weekends meant I wasn't sort of part of the local community as a youngster in terms of, you know, football matches and rugby matches and all the things that would normally bring you together. You know, I had my friends at school, but it's fair to say that not everyone really understood what racing was. And I think it wasn't really until I won the Scottish Karting Championship in 1984. So I would have been 13 or 14. And, and then I, I remember the, the, the rector at our school reading that out in the morning. Um, so coming in, and, and so I guess that was the first time that maybe my, my name would have been recognized or read out in anything. And, and it gave me a sense of I was, I was doing something purposeful rather than a lot of people didn't really understand what I was doing. And, and it made you a little bit the outsider. So I, so I definitely had periods when I was at school where, you know, the old getting sent to Coventry because you weren't part of a kind of group. And I remember when I was probably about 14 or 15, my father sort of questioning my commitment. You know, do you, if you want to race, then we'll, we'll go racing. But if, you, if you're not committed to it, then, you know, your mother and I are away all week on business. And if we come back and take you away to race in London on the weekend, if your heart's not in it, then, you know, you've got a brother, you've got a sister, you know, you've got to show your commitment. And I do remember thinking about it for a few days um, about, well, is this really what I want to do? And of course, then deciding, yep, it's what I want to do. You know, after I was involved in a plane crash in 2000, uh, you know, the, the, very sadly, the pilots were killed. And to continue my career, I would have to continue flying. And, you know, that could have been the end of my life journey. And again, asking myself, do I want to do this? And of course, deciding, yes, I do. But there's been key moments in my life where you, you could have gone either direction, but your inner desire, your inner hunger was yeah. enough to, to make you want to refocus and, and go on with the challenge. I am interested in that notion of, of commitment because it's a huge part of what mental toughness is defined as this commitment to a higher challenge and being driven to, to take it on. How clear were you as you, as you got, uh, I think in, in 1989, you said the Scottish um, Karting Championship. How clear were you in your goals thereafter? 
David, on, on what you wanted to achieve? Or, or was it just an adventure, let's see where this takes me? But at that point at which I, in 1989, when I was 17, I was racing in Formula 4 1600, which was my father's sort of logical route of you've got to get out of karting because there's no, there's no professional career in karting where I was enjoying racing and I was enjoying success. He was, you've got to go to cars if you stand any chance of making a professional career. So he was a lot more focused and, and um, visionary about what the, the potential he felt I had. Yeah. So I think at that stage, I was just along for the ride, but not, not being guided or pushed. I had the motivation. I was training. I, I, I you know, was totally focused on what was in front of me. But I'm not sure I truly believed that it would lead to Formula One. It's not that I didn't believe, but I, I think I've always been the person. I'm not looking at the, the top of the ladder. I'm looking at the next rung that I need to get a hold of. You know, I, I'm very focused on where I am. And if I do this well, there'll be an opportunity for the next rung on the ladder. It, it sounds like your dad was, was a huge mentor in the early days. You, well, when, when do you think was the first goal that you set for yourself that was, that was totally on your own, autonomous, and it was your decision? Well, that came in 93. And uh, I remember my father, you know, the, the, he had supported me. Um, uh, my whole family had supported me, but financially he supported me as, as far as, as they felt they could. And I was going into, a, a, sorry, a second year of, of Formula 3000, which is the last step before Formula One. I remember my father saying that, look, son, we, we, you know, we've reached the point where we don't have the financial resource anymore. So kind of, you know, we're here, but good luck. And that's when I had to get out there and, and get in front of, you know, chassis manufacturers and engine manufacturers and people to, to that I had built up the knowledge and experience within the motorsports community. I won an award at the end of 1989 because I won the, the junior Formula 4 championships. And it was called the McLaren Autosport Young Driver of the Year. It was the first year of this particular award. And essentially, it, you got the chance to drive a Grand Prix car. So that was at the end of 89. It was the end of 1990 that I got to drive the McLaren Formula One car. And I remember I was living in Milton Keynes, where the team were based that I was driving for. And I remember phoning my father and saying, so I'll drive the car next week. When are you coming down? And I remember him saying to me, they're testing you. They're not testing me. So enjoy the test. Try not to crash. Give me a call afterwards. So I turned up to drive a Grand Prix car for the very first time, all on my own, which, you know, is not a big boohoo moment. But given the journey we'd been on towards, you know, that, that you'd think this would be a big moment that you're driving a Grand Prix car. But I think it showed, you know, great um, vision from, from my father and mother that, they can help you so far, you know, it's the old lead the horse to water, we can't make it drink. If you haven't got the ability to stand on your own two feet or get up again when you fall over, then they're not really serving you well. It's, it, it's good leadership from your parents yeah. to, to get to almost, you see it in the workplace, don't you, where you take a tell style, sell style, consult, and then, and then you delegate and, and, and yeah. then they're, they're on their own, right? I mean, that's, that, that's incredible. And it's the point that, Sometimes those big moments in your career just come out of nowhere. Sometimes they just, if you put the time in, put the effort in, um, eventually they, they just present themselves. 
the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello. Keep calm and carry on listening. Another part of, of anybody's journey is coming back after a setback. So I'm interested to know what would you say were some of the uh, one of the biggest setbacks in your career during Formula One and what did you take from that setback? Well, I think, uh, again, the, the sort of transition from being test driver at Williams to being the race driver uh, was fairly straightforward. Uh, I, I wasn't pushing the team uh, to take me because I felt they already knew everything they, they were going to about me because I tested for them for, for two or three years. And I just felt out of the tragedy and trauma of the loss of Ayrton, I just didn't feel it was appropriate to be phoning Frank and saying, put me in the car. Anyway, he decided to put me in the car. And that led to eight races in 94, then a full-time contract in 95. And then, you know, my career went nine seasons at McLaren. So the, the, the really, and of course, there was challenges and difficulties and learnings and, you know, both driving-wise and, and emotionally and business and what have you, you know, incredible journey of life. And then it was at the end of that 2004 season when I found myself out of contract. So I'd already been, what, 11 seasons in, in Formula One, more. And, and suddenly I, the phone wasn't ringing. And again, it was that realization that just because you've been doing something at a high level for a long time, yeah. don't mistake the fact that people will continue to keep coming to you. So, you know, for a couple of weeks at the end of that year, I was like, hmm, this, this is, I'm having to try and get my head around this. And yeah. then I was like, right, I'm not finished with Formula One. There's more that I can do. There's more that I want to do. I'm, I'm going to shake every tree, knock on every door to find where the opportunity lay. And, you know, I offered to be test driver for most of the, the top teams, which would have been considered below what my experience was. But all the other seats were taken. And I didn't, you know, I frankly didn't mind rolling my sleeves up and getting down and dirty and doing what could be seen as the, the you know, the, the boring work rather than going racing to prove that I still had the hunger, to prove that I still had the desire. And ultimately, uh, Red Bull bought Jaguar. That led to that opportunity. And I had another four years racing for, for Red Bull. And then my career reached its natural conclusion where... I, I was ready to stop. I'd reached the point where I no longer had the fight. I no longer had the mental uh, determination to, to, to fight for that thousands of a second, you know, the, to, to you know, chase the lap time, to, to sit in the debriefs, dreaming that we could find some performance. And it's really interesting because I never knew what that moment would feel like until I felt it. Mm -hmm. And having felt it, it, there's no pain in it. it you, it's just like, you, it's not that I, I describe it in human terms. It's not that you've lost the love. You've just lost the passion. I mean, going back to you know, being the, the, the tester of the cars, how important do you think it is just not caring about what people think when you know it's, it's, it's part of your purpose and you've still got that passion, you've still got that love? Yeah, 100%. You've got an extra four years David, from making that decision and yeah. not caring about what people think? I, I just don't live in the past. It's, it, it's fun in some ways, of course, to, to look back because I'm very much about 
the here and now, the best moment is right now. And how do you make the best out of the coming moment rather than, and I know it's just words and I, I would never want to spoil anyone's big day. But when I, when I hear people go, oh, it was the best day of my life, I'm happy for them, but I'm also behind my smile. I'm thinking, my, I hope I never have that moment where the best day of my life feels like it was a historical moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I really want the best day of my life to be the last day of my, my life. Yeah. Not, not a point where I won a Grand Prix or, or something like that. Because, I, again, I don't define success by holding a trophy, although that's what was the definition of success in, in my sporting career. And I've never regretted the, the day I walked away from being a Grand Prix driver. And occasionally I'll reminisce, but not very often. At your best, you've woken up knowing that you were going to be successful. I'm just thinking, what, what did this kind of optimism, positive self-regard, what impact did that actually have on your behaviour on, on race day? Well, interestingly... The, the next logical question off the back of this is if I could explain what that feeling was and what the preparation that led to it, then why was I not able to harness it more often? So in answering a question you didn't ask, I never, was re I never understood or could never tap into what leading up to those moments gave me such belief. Because there was no, it wasn't like I, up until the race day morning, I had a dominant car or you clearly had a good enough car to be at the front and to, to believe I had a sporting chance. But very occasionally, I had such an overwhelming feeling of confidence and belief that I don't know where it came from, other than maybe just in preparation terms, because I always was very disciplined in my preparation. Whatever it is that, that empowers the brain to, to, to deliver in its, you know, the body... It's, it's, its ability to steer and to feel and to, to, to visualize the corner. Maybe that was just chemically, I was in the perfect moment. You know, it was the, the perfect cocktail within the chemicals in my body yeah. that just enabled me. And maybe elite, elite athletes, the serial winners, in, are able to stay in that state uh, more often because it was not necessarily about feeling good. Because I won, you know, some really good races where I didn't feel at all well. And I won some races where I felt convinced I was going to win them. So I've eliminated the belief that it was to do with just mental, you know, mental and physical positive attitude. Because yeah. I think it's more than that. Um, but uh, yeah, there was just on a few occasions, everything just felt aligned. And, and how it perpetuated itself out over the course of the day was almost like a... Uh, I almost said arrogance, but I don't think I was an arrogant person but almost an, an impatience from it to any distraction beyond getting in the car. Yeah. So, you know, you build a team around you, your team know you, they know your moods. And if you really, you know, that's part of the whole preparation. It's not just driving the car. It's about everything from when you wake up to eating your breakfast, to, you know, your warm up exercises to getting into the circuit, to who you have to talk to, to getting into your environment, to getting dressed. There's so many, you sort of, you know, I, I guess in, uh, tennis would be an example where, you know, the sort of some of them bounce the ball five times, some of them bounce it 10 times, or yeah. Ronnie Wilkinson doing that unusual crouch before he kicks the, the rugby ball when he was yeah. playing. Yeah. That's a very visible moment that everyone can see as part of their preparation. 
I felt it was extrapolated out over from when the alarm went off in the morning to being left alone in the car before the race. It was over several hours. Those several hours were incredibly important as, a, as part of maintaining my emotional energy and my, my, my focus and everything. So you didn't want anything to get in the way of, of your preparation because it just becomes a distraction. When you looked over your shoulder on, on the starting grid and you saw the likes of Schumacher, did you ever have any self-limiting beliefs, like a, an unhelpful inner voice that just pop, popped up? And if you did, you know, how did you even manage that in the moment? Well, qualifying would be an example. You know, when I was in the main part of my career, we had an hour to qualify and you could go out when you felt it was the appropriate time. And there were certainly times where I felt very much on top of the car and I, the lap time was there. And I, I, I always, even when you've done a really good lap, you've got a new set of tires. There's always the potential to go faster. There's equally the potential to make a mistake and go slower. But as the, the session evolves, you you have to believe in the potential. But there were times on the flip side where I was struggling and couldn't get the car balanced to my liking, where I'd see the lap time that, that my competitors had done, or my teammate, and I would, I would go, I don't think I can do that. So, you know, that's a fairly negative thought if you're thinking, I don't think I can do that. But the reality is you owe it to yourself, your team, and, and you know, professionalism to try even if you don't think you can do it, you should try. It's, and it doesn't have to be driving a Grand Prix car trying to, to do a fast lap time. You know, I was doing some exercise earlier and I was doing some bench pressing. And I don't have to do any exercise now at my age. But I, I got to the point where I was thinking, you know, I've done enough over the years. I'm thinking, well, I'm probably three away from what I can do. Then I'm like, well, yeah, probably two away from what I can do. I'm like, oh, oh I, can, I can do this last one. Therefore, I can do another one. You know, I don't have to do it, but it's about, you know, you, you've, three reps before, I didn't think I could really do the last three, but I did the last three, and then I thought I could do another one. So you can always do, not always, but there's always the potential to do more, even when a few moments before you think you can't. And the only way you can find out is by trying. Yeah. The minute you throw towel in, that's it. You, you've... You've crystallised the position. You've got you've got a chance, haven't you? You've got a chance. If you have exactly. a go, you've got a chance. So don't yeah. eliminate the one chance that you've got. Yeah, I completely understand. Yeah, it's a classic thing, isn't it? When people go, "Oh, I can't do that," or "I'm not good at that." You know, there's so many things I know I'm not good at, but I'm not sure I would say I can do that. I think it's really important to to catch the inner voice as well. It, it's that ability to to say, "Well, what's the worst that can happen?" This is the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Other podcasts are available. They're just not as good. I mean, I can't imagine the intensity. You're sitting there in your car. Where, where does the management of emotions come into play at the starting grid in front of the lights? You're calming yourself by breathing because it's not because you, you're not feeling calm, but there's a lot of, a lot of adrenaline, you know, your heart rate heightens and you know, the moment warrants you to be in that fight or flight type uh, scenario, but you're trying to, you know, keep everything calm to enable you to focus on the next important thing and watching the lights. 
and feeling the car. So that's an incredibly important moment that you've got to be in a heightened state of full focus. I always loved the moment when the mechanics walked away from the car and, and then it was down to me. It just, I like in a team environment of those moments of ownership. I can't imagine what it would be like in, in your context, but I can get a feeling when, when I'm presenting and just realizing, yeah, you know, I, I am actually living a little bit of, I'm, I'm living my purpose and enjoying what I do and I've got the freedom to, to do it. One of the challenges I have not being a racing driver anymore is, is to get into that focus. I think what can happen in everyday life is we, we, we start multitasking. So, you know, in this environment where we're working from home, but you've got a family, so you're doing what you need to do, but you're conscious of, or we've got a lunch break, or conscious of, oh, I said I would, you know, do some exercise with our son. You carry these thoughts. And the wonderful thing about being in a sport is, uh, and I'm not promoting being a selfish person, but it's a wonderfully selfish environment where you're only thinking about the task in hand and you're only thinking about yourself in that moment. But that's actually what's required to get the very best out of yourself and the very best out of that moment. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the great challenges in, in business life to, to you know, whether it's a board meeting or a, discuss, you know, a planning meeting, to be in the moment of what is being discussed. I think you know, from the leaders that I've worked with, they're bullish about their time. They're actually, they, they, they don't appreciate a teleconference that, you know, has no agenda. They're not sure why they're there. And that bullishness is so that they can achieve, achieve their end goals. Could you bring that to life a little bit more for us in, in terms of where you would and where you wouldn't channel energy, almost um, where you wouldn't sweat the small stuff? Well, you're constantly within a team. You've got a teammate and his success is your failure because you can't both win the race. And your success is this failure. So with, within the environment of the team, you've got this curious battle between the two, which for the, for the health and well-being and general ability to, to get things done in a harmonious way, you, you've got to find uh, a way of, at certain points, putting to one side your natural desire to beat each other versus the greater good of the, the company. It teaches you to pick your battles what is really, really important? What is something that you truly, truly believe in? And I'm sure you see in, in your life, there's some people you come across, they'll argue about everything. And to, to be a listener until it really matters, I think is a good thing. The longer you listen to somebody talking, the more it helps shape your, your view, your opinion, your, the information you have for when you need to lobby for what you need in, in racing terms your team may have, may have something which is important to him that you're prepared to let go. Could be on a, the design of the steering wheel or something like that. And there'll be other things that are really important and you'd call your showstoppers. And difficulty in a team is the inconsistent guys that, that say one thing one day and another thing the, the next day. I give it no problem with people changing their opinion when more information comes available because that's part of discovery. But just changing your point of view for the, because the wind's changed it's incredibly frustrating when you're trying to sort of put your energy towards moving forward. Yeah. A, a core part to any leadership is consistency because people aren't comfortable with people acting one way and, and, and then differently the, the next. And you and I have spoken about trust previously. How damaging is it when you might lose the trust of uh, whether it be a co-driver or, or, or someone on your team? And, 
what are the ways in which trust could, could be lost in, in Formula One within a team? We all make mistakes. We all do things in the heat of a moment that we, on reflection, maybe wouldn't have done or shouldn't have done. And I think that in the, in the spirit of team and the spirit of moving forward, you don't always have to agree and you can certainly agree to disagree, but that in itself allows you to understand who you're working with, who you're dealing with. This is the Workplace Evolution Podcast. I know it's tough out there, but you can do this. You've got to have the ability to give people the opportunity to explain, even if it's at the time you may not want to have that conversation but there'll be a you know a day later or a week later whatever it is if, if somebody's going to make the effort to try and explain their actions i think they deserve if you've got a relationship with you know within the same team or as competitors they, they deserve the opportunity to put forward the case it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to agree with them of course and it may further uh serve to confirm that you can never trust them again I think it, it must be difficult to give someone a second chance when they've made, made an error and, and that's on their track, track record when you're dealing with someone's safety. Well, I've had a situation where I had a bad crash at Silverstone um, due to a, a steering issue with the car. And it was a mistake, uh, innocent mistake made by a professional mechanic. And one of the great things about sport, I think, in the business of, uh, of Formula One is that we don't have a blame culture, we have a responsibility culture. Even if you look at the greats like Senna and Schumacher and Hamilton, they've all made what looked like fairly basic errors. But it wasn't out of caring, it was just, it's difficult when you've got a moving target in a racing car and you're dealing with vehicle dynamics and nature and all those sorts of things. Occasionally, your best judgment turns out not to be able to to keep the car on the racetrack. So it was an accident, the mechanic, by the time I got there, recognized it was his mistake, owned up to that mistake, was fairly distraught emotionally because he realized the consequence could have been fatal. And I had a track record with him of of very good reliability. And, you know, my immediate reaction was, let's get it rebuilt, let's get back out there, and it won't happen again. Because I trusted it was a genuine mistake. And I had no doubt in the context of everything he'd shown me there would be other mistakes in the same way I'd make other mistakes as a driver, but that mistake would never happen again. My final question on, on, on race day, David, would, would really be about how important is a learning culture and, and an ability to learn from mistakes to your mental toughness? Well, I think it it's unquestionably gives you mental resilience dealing with setbacks and knockbacks, and a lot of those have come through the lower formulas. And it's how you bounce back from difficult difficulties i think that is what defines mental resilience and, and and toughness there's a lot of people that that for whatever reason don't feel the need or they don't have the desire to want to come back and they, they, they just walk away and it may be you know the great talents and and with a bit more support from somebody else maybe they would have realized that talent but for whatever reason, they haven't found it on that day or that key moment within themselves. You know, I made many mistakes in my, my career, some really silly ones. But I honestly can never remember not caring or giving up. I always cared, and I don't remember ever giving up. 
in a sport where people are brutally honest, whether they think you're performing or not, I'm pretty sure if I ever gave the impression, somebody would have told me. You know, if it wasn't the, the team principal who was paying you a lot of money to drive the car, it would have been your engineer. Because it's a, it's a, this, this responsibility culture is, and I was going to say it's brutally honest, but I understand that in the business world, that, that, that word would, be, would not be encouraged to be used. Understand. You understand what I mean? You know, it's, it's an expression. Being, being more di direct and, and honest and transparent about as much as you can be. Yeah, and, and by using that expression, it's not that it's a shouting match. Occasionally, there's emotions run high because your, your life is on the line. And I've certainly got out of the car in testing events when something has gone wrong again that's gone wrong before and you've had the discussion of this, you know, guys, this is dangerous. We've got to get on top of this. And it happens again. And then you go to the person that's responsible and you, you like, you've got to get this sorted. You know, you, there's no question that your focus and your energy and your, your sort of passion stroke anger is directed very much at them mm. and either step up and take the challenge or they don't. They throw in the towel and, and you've, you've learned everything about that team member you need to know. Not everyone's got an answer, of course not. But even if you don't have the answer, especially in a technology business, the attitude is, all, is as important as the answer. If you've learned from it, you've done what you can with it, yeah. and applied it, then you know, that, that sounds good for mental toughness for me. And, and we've covered all of the, the areas then. Control of emotions, being driven, committed to challenge, bouncing back from setbacks and, and self-belief. During your career, I just wondered, was there part of you that just wanted to be a, a fan of, of Formula One? You, you mentioned your love, you know, passion turning to, to love. Uh, are you in that space now where you can just in, enjoy it and be a fan? I, the reason I hesitated is because I was so in the moment of my career that I don't remember ever going, oh, this is so much fun. Oh, you know like if you go to a concert and you, you you're in the moment of listening to the music and you share that with your friends and you talk about it on the way home about how good it was it, it's just different when you're doing a professional sport you move on to the next thing very quickly so it's quite certainly for me it was difficult to stay in that moment of elation if you'd won because you knew the work started the next morning first thing to try and win the next race so i don't I, my perception is that people must think it's, it's just brilliant fun all the time being paid to drive racing cars. But the reality is it's a lot of, you know, mundane slog in the gym and the test track, things not working out, frustrations. And it's, it's, it's lots of that in rare moments of elation, which then you would therefore logically answering a question would think that not having any of the pain and just watching would mean, would mean I get the enjoyment. But I'm now in a situation where I'm too close to it to imagine what it must be like because I know what it's like. So I think the joy in being a fan of a particular sport is amplified if you've never actually done that sport at professional level. There look like there are a number of different initiatives going on in, in your world. What does the next chapter look like for David Coulthard? Continue to, to grow the businesses I'm involved in. And growing them right now, as we speak, means recovering from, from uh, 
where we were post COVID to where we'll be on the other side, because, you know, the, the television production has ceased at the moment, you know, we have sports contracts at Formula One and we were uh, gearing up to do the Paralympics and things like that, which have been postponed. Uh, my event company clearly, uh, you know, the, the no live events are happening right now. Um, so gearing up and, and continuing to look for the opportunities. And I still feel there's, there's something, I don't know what that thing is, but there's still something which I haven't defined. And I'm not looking too hard because I'm a great believer that opportunity comes sometimes when you're, you're not looking. Um, but there, there's a bit like when I knew at the end of 2004, I wasn't finished as a driver in Formula One. I know I'm not finished in my desire to take on a new challenge. I just don't know what that new challenge is. But the theme of being excited about the future in mental toughness continues and hopefully will continue for, for many of those that, that are listening. David, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast and, and sharing your incredible journey. And hopefully the Formula One season will be back up and up and running soon. And, and, and so will you, your events and we'll hopefully see you on the screen soon as, as well. For now, yeah. thank, you for, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. That was the Workplace Evolution Podcast with Michael Costello. Please remember to like and subscribe and share the podcast. Watch out for our next episode. Hey gang, this is Mr. Motivator on the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Oh my goodness. Now listen, get up off that chair and sort that belly out. I said exercise, not extra fries. You hear me? Say yeah. Yeah.